0: Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. Thank you, Anne, for reading that story. And uh, thank you to the church for uh, that story was a gift that was given to Elisa and I, the Garden the Curtain and the Cross, uh, for, well, during the baptism of Annika. And we thought it just worked so well with the Easter theme that we had for the year, uh, but it also worked so well with the, the current series that we are in uh, Right now, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, uh, because we're in that story, uh, the first part that we just heard about in the kid's story. Before we get to the Bible reading, though, I want to do a reading with you uh, from Our World Belongs to God. Uh, So I have this on the slide here. We're going to read uh, the first or the Paragraph 7, 8, 11, and 12. And I'm going to invite you to read in response with me. So I'll read the parts that are not in bold. And if you follow along in the bold, our world belongs to God, not to us or earthly powers, not to demons, fate, or chance. The earth is the Lord's. In the beginning, God. Father, Word, and Spirit, the three-in-one God, called this world into being out of nothing and gave it shape and order. Together, male and female, single and married, young and old, every hue and variety of humanity, we are called to represent God, for the Lord God made us all. Life is God's gift to us, and we are called to foster the well-being of all the living, protecting from harm, the unborn and the weak, the poor, and the vulnerable. Even now, as history unfolds in ways we know only in part, we are assured that God is with us in our world, holding all things in tender embrace and bending them to his purpose. The confidence that the Lord is faithful gives meaning to our days and hope to our years. The future is secure, for our world belongs to God. Well, that makes uh, a good setup for today's service because, as the title here shows... Uh, the title is Rebellion Our World Belongs to Us. And there's this clever little strike through on God where we're using our full extent of uh, Microsoft Word and PowerPoint here. Our world belongs to us, is this picture of what rebellion looks like. We're going to be reading the first 10 verses of Genesis chapter 3, and then we're going to go ahead to verses 20 through 24. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now up to verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove them out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to start by reading a few lyrics from a song written by someone by the name of David Bazan. Uh, I'm not sure if many of you know who that is, so I'll give a bit of a backstory. He's someone, uh, kind of an indie songwriter who is quite popular for wrestling through his faith throughout his lyrics. And after he renounced his faith, he, he continued to wrestle with that background. And this song comes from one of the first albums that he released after, uh, after he renounced his faith. This song's called Hard to Be. It goes like this. You've heard the story, you know how it goes. Once upon a garden, we were lovers with no clothes, Fresh from the soil, we were beautiful and true, in control of all of our emotions till we ate that poisoned fruit, and now it's hard to be a decent human being. Wait just a minute. You expect me to believe that all this misbehaving came from one enchanted tree? And helpless to fight it, we should all be satisfied for this magical explanation for why the living die and why it's hard to be. Hard to be, hard to be a decent human being. The song goes on, it has four verses to it. Uh, Amongst other things, one of the things that he's attacking is anti-intellectualism within Christianity. Uh, He locates that back to Genesis chapter 3, telling a story where it's a pursuit of knowledge that uh, humanity enters into sin. Now, the song concludes with this image of, of him moving his tassel from his graduation cap and, and signaling that he was moving forward and moving on from these naive stories that he told when he was younger into a more civilized and educated world. The song does hinge on something that I think we can all agree on, though. And that's that central part in the course where he goes back to, that it is very hard to be a decent human being. The question for us is whether or not this story is actually satisfactory for us. Now, I'm assuming that most of you haven't heard this song by David Bazan. Uh, I don't choose it because it's so popular, but because it represents so many different stories, and it also represents the type of story that we sometimes tell when we go back to some of these stories from early Genesis. Uh, We might not know uh, this song, but it is also representative of many of the people that we know whose doubts could not be sustained, whose skepticism has turned to cynicism. Friends or classmates, Relatives were children. This story that David Bazan tells has been told over and over again. And it's a bit of a caricature of the garden story. You can see pieces of it that are actually in the story here. And most of you have probably heard a portion of that story, or at least this is how I remember it being told when I, when I was younger. Uh, the garden is this paradise where all is good, then we ate this kind of poisoned fruit, and because of that, uh, eating from this enchanted tree, life is hard. Uh, The the focus gets placed on, on the tree and the fruit, rather than God and his people. And we want to ask, is that actually the story that Genesis is telling here? Or is there something deeper? And to get into that, we're going to have to go back to uh, a couple of the themes that we've been working on in the last couple of weeks. So if you are visiting this week or if you have forgotten, we're just going to go back and revisit uh, what the first two chapters do in setting up the story, because they give us the the setting, which is very important. Uh, The setting of the story is here of a God who creates. He creates it of delight and freedom, a creation that he delights in as good. This is a story about laughing and juggling, the, the, the pure love of things just being and existing in all of its diversity. God doesn't create because he's lonely, but he creates to share in the self-giving and ever-receiving love. God creates so that creation can enjoy God. And the creation context is this temple garden, this this place where God resides and where it goes on to fill, to expand into the rest of the world. And that gives the setting, uh, but there are also characters. The the main character of the story is God, but there are also some other main characters that get introduced in the first two chapters, and that is humanity, humanity. Uh, humanity's given this charge right here, to fill the earth. They were to subdue it and bring dominion over it. Uh, sometimes the language that's used for subdue and bring dominion is kind of one of violence. It, it's like uh, it gets twisted into... Uh, The idea of violent tenants who destroy the house or gardeners who have this permission just to clear cut what's ever there. But looking at the story, to subdue and bring dominion is to carefully bring this creation into flourishing. They were to image God in this way, that being image bearers of God has a role attached to it. So just like God throughout Genesis chapter 1 who subdues the darkness, he subdues the forces of chaos, humanity is called to subdue. Just like God setting it up for growth and life, humanity's dominion was so that they could fill the earth. Genesis 2 verse 15 here says, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it gives a little snapshot of the role that humanity was meant to take here. Taking care of the world is key to understanding what it means to be an image-bearer. Uh, the image that I've given before for the image-bearing of humanity being a role is that we're, we're kind of like a mirror, that we image God, and the mirror is on an angle, out into the world, that we bring God's good rule, and we bring that into the world, bring that flourishing. But we also function like a mirror in that we take all the blessings of God's world and we point that back up towards God as praise. That we use all of creation to delight in who God is. Now, this role of being an image bearer is very important because the problem of the story in Genesis chapter 3 is not a transgression of a rule, but a confusion of a role say that one again. The problem of Genesis 3 is not a transgression of a rule, but a confusion of a role. So rather than creation being something that is meant to point towards God and meant to delight in him, humanity takes it and uses it for their own selfish needs, just to delight in themselves, to try elevate themselves. So unlike the song that we looked at in the beginning... That kind of gives the snapshot and caricature of the creation story where it's just about this poisoned fruit and paradise. This is actually a story about the rejection of the central role that humanity has. It's rebellion against God. Uh, one way that I have found it helpful to look at this story is that it's sometimes presented as an either-or option. That they could either have the fruit or they could worship God. Uh, But that doesn't always play out very well. I, I think a helpful way to look at it is that in taking the fruit, they were refusing to see creation as a way through which they could glorify God. It wasn't that they were taking creation instead of God, but that they were rejecting what creation was made for, that it was to be a means through which they could delight in God. Rather than using creation to bring God's glory, they seek to use creation to become like God. They want to be gods themselves. They're trying to harness creation for their good alone. It's something that they can manipulate for their own benefit so that they can be like the creator. It's kind of this ultimate insult where the people that were meant to be image bearers begin to think that they are the image itself. They begin to think that they are creators in their own right. I think that it's helpful to look at this story in terms of idolatry. Um, Idolatry is placing anything alongside or above God. And in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 4, you see the leaning towards idolatry sneaking in There's first the questioning of God's word, and then in verse 4, the questioning of God's command. There's the elevation of their own perspective, of their own thoughts of what they can be doing. They start to think that they can be doing all these things independent from God. The people begin to place their trust in the word of the serpent and themselves, alongside or above God, and ultimately their choice in the end is one of idolatry, of pride, of inflation of their perspective of themselves. So far from being a story about an arbitrary rule here, that's meant to explain why things are hard, this is a story that points back to the central condition of humanity a people who turn inwardly rather than to God for our trust. Something that I think we know, that this story continues on for us today. Our pursuit for happiness is something that often will leave us miserable. Uh, An example of this is coming from uh, early on in the midst of the pandemic, where people were wondering: okay, how do we maintain our happiness? How do we bring this in? Uh, some of the universities and, and colleges out there started offering free courses. The most popular course out there uh, was one that was offered in Yale, and it was called The Science and of Well-Being, The Psychology of Happiness and the Good Life. Uh, if you look at that title and you want to write that down to find that later, uh, you wouldn't be alone. That course had over 2.2 million people uh, register for it. Um, if you haven't been at college recently, that's like a very good sign-up uh, ratio. You're, you're doing pretty good as a course uh, if you're getting those numbers in there. And this speaks to a society that, that desperately wants to recover the good life. They're, they're turning to science. They're turning towards anything that they can to recover that sense of happiness that they can control it for themselves. It speaks to a people who have turned inwardly over and over again to solve their problems but come up empty again and again. The the reason why it's so hard to be is that despite our incapability and our incapacity, we still want to be in control. We still want to be God's. We have this pride working in us, continuing to inflate our perspectives of ourselves, thinking that we should be the ones that are in control. And I hope that we, we see this, that, that we do, in fact, make lousy gods. We, we can't sustain the claim to be like God that they tried to achieve in Genesis chapter 3, and that we can't get ourselves out of the problem that we've worked into here. Often, in in the midst of our fear, when we realize this, we try to just rebuff. We try to kind of put on uh, a swagger or kind of boast about how well we're doing. We kind of put on a bit of a show uh, to pretend that things are fine. Uh, But there's this honesty that lies behind it, that we do still have this deep, dependent need For God. Perhaps if we were honest, we would do something a little bit like what Adam and Eve did here. Uh, In the story, we'll see the first thing that Adam and Eve do is hide. It doesn't take long for them to recognize that they have done wrong, for mistrust to enter in. Uh, In the story here, it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Augustine, a fourth century pastor and theologian, so writing about 1600 years ago, looked at this passage and he brings this reflection that. Their recognition of their nakedness isn't, the opening of their eyes isn't because of some magical properties of the fruit, but instead a deep awareness of their rebellion from God's command. So he compares it to sickness. How when we enter into sickness, our eyes are opened to how great it is to be healthy. How just wonderful that health looks from our space of being sick. Their eyes are opened because they are in a place of guilt and of shame. They see the good, but now they can only see it from a distance, like a sick person remembering what it was to be healthy. They cover themselves with fig leaves, and they hide. Uh, We have in the story here, God calling out to them, where are you? They have hid themselves. They were embarrassed to be in presence of the holy God in light of their attempt to be like him. Their pride, which led to take creation to be their own instead of God's, is revealed as empty when they're in the face of the true God himself. Notice the effects of trying to be like God. Uh, when both Adam and Eve try to be like him, um, it affects them in their trust of one another. Uh, we see separation from them, and we see distrust in them in their covering of themselves. They create clothes of fig leaves that they're no longer at ease with one another. The alienation, of course, isn't just from one another, but it's also a separation from God. When God comes in the garden, they run and hide. They go beyond just the coverings that they've made. This passage might remind us of the the beginning of the book of Proverbs. In chapter 1, verse 7, we have this famous line that wisdom never comes from disobeying the Lord, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And it's a bit of a turn from the desire of wisdom that is found in this passage. In the story, their eyes are opened, but it's not an opening of their eyes of wisdom. It's simply opening their eyes to the things that have been spoiled. The forces of death are already at work in the story, as death is separation, separation from the one who brings life. Part of why it's so hard to be, to go back to the song that we started with here, comes from the separation that we cause ourselves. It's hard to be because, like this story, um, we're part of it. When our own pride and in our own arrogance, we think that this world is all there is, and we act like the world belongs to us rather than to God We don't recognize it as a wonderful creation that was meant to, through our engagement with it, to be a thing that we bring praise back up towards God. Are we brave enough to recognize the guilt and shame that we have in light of our sin? Are we brave enough to look past the, the posturing that we sometimes bring? Do we recognize that we ought to be joining Adam and Eve in the hiding? I ask that knowing that the story doesn't end there. It ends actually in a place of grace. After God, after seeing them, Uh, doesn't just revoke their roles. God doesn't go on to create a a new image bearer who then could fill the earth with his glory. Uh, God continues with these people. We find in verse 20, a sign of this grace in the name that Adam brings for his wife, because she would become the mother of all the living This is entering into that fulfillment of the role. They're still going to go on to filling of the earth. It's just going to look different than what they had planned. Another point of grace that's often overlooked is in this next verse, though. Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So here is a a reference to God making animal skins for Adam and his wife. He clothes them. Uh, The fig leaves are replaced by something much more robust, something that can actually deal with the hard things that they're going to enter into. In this action, God's providing for them it recognizes the seriousness of the situation. God doesn't just come up to them and say, okay, your, your guilt is fine, it's removed, it doesn't exist. Just go on and continue living in this garden. Instead, it takes seriously what has happened and the change, but it doesn't just leave them on their own devices. God gives them clothing to prepare for what is ahead. It takes seriously the severity of their rejection. But God's grace for them is providing more sound coverings. God prepares them for the hostile environment that they are entering, and there's a glint of hope there. that God provides for the people in the midst of their rebellion against him. Now, this covering that is given is, is prefiguring something else. It's It's giving a signal that another type of covering is going to be on its way. We see the provision of God's grace here foreshadowing a greater provision of grace that's picked up often in the New Testament. We find the language of being clothed in righteousness and being clothed in Christ. We find the authors of the New Testament do the same thing. They do not deny the shame and the guilt of sin. They do not see people being able to lift themselves out of the problem. Instead, it is in being clothed. But it's not some shabby fig leaves and not animal skins, but the gracious and full provision of God through Jesus. Because because of Jesus, we do not need to hide. Because of Jesus, we do not need to fear God's presence Because of Jesus, God welcomes us in. We might remember the line of our eyes being opened. Uh, That was a line that we looked at back in Easter, where in the road to Emmaus, the opening of the eyes comes in light of Jesus, who is signaling the new creation. On the basis of Jesus' sacrifice, his death on the cross, we are welcomed in. On the basis of Jesus, he he is the one that clothes us with righteousness, that we need not fear God's presence, as we saw in our children's story today as well. Once again, uh, the cure for our fears and anxieties is not something that we do. We cannot undo the fact that we've all made the claim that the world belongs to us. We have acted selfishly. We have acted in pride. But the solution comes in acknowledging that our world belongs to God. And not only that, but salvation belongs to God. That salvation includes us. We do not save ourselves, but find salvation in the one who is worthy of our trust, the true image of God. So to summarize here, uh, this is not some simplistic story of magic fruit, but about rebellion from what we were created to be, and a God who generously and graciously continues to provide despite it. A God who not only gives the garments as they leave the garden, but, they, but promises a day where we will be together again in full. The invitation here today is to trust in that God, to continually commit yourself to this God, knowing that the grace that you are clothed with Christ, that this invitation is extended to all who believe in him, no matter what you have done. Our contemporary testimony, our world belongs to God that we started with, uh, we read a portion of the creation section. I want to finish here with uh, how they finish the section on the fall. It says, In all of our striving to excuse or save ourselves, we stand condemned before the God of truth. But our world, broken and scarred, still belongs to God, who holds it together and gives us hope. In the midst of the temptation to try and inflate ourselves, the perspectives of ourselves, may we recognize the need to put on Christ, a practice that we take up daily, centering in on our need for him. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, Our world belongs to you. In the places where we trick ourselves in thinking that it's about us, when we hoard our possessions, when we think only about ourselves and neglect the vulnerable, when we fail to see that we are to be your image bearers, we pray, have mercy on us. Forgive us for our sin. We thank you that we do not have to try to feebly cover ourselves, but that you clothe us in Christ. May this clothing bring us to act in righteousness and goodness, to live for you through your equipping. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.